Welcome to the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward, a podcast looking at legislation as it passes through Iraqtas Air in our National Parliament. Thanks for downloading the Irish Legislation Podcast and welcome to episode 12 when we're going to look at the Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Amendment Bill 2021. Uh, there's been a bit of hiatus in activity, which is my fault, and I'm sorry that we've had a couple of weeks where there hasn't been an episode, but we're back on track now and looking forward to a succession of uh, weekly podcasts dealing with legislation as they go through the Oireachtas. Uh, as ever, we're very grateful to your support for listening and downloading and commenting on the podcast. Please do tell your friends, and if you'd like to suggest anything for the podcast, you can contact me, Barry Ward, at barry.ward at aroctus.ie. Okay, well, I'm joined now uh, to discuss the uh, Climate Action Bill by Richard Bruton TD, Fine Gael TD for Dublin Bay North, and of course, a former Minister for Communications, Climate Change and the Environment, and by Attracta Eve Rin, who is the Environmental Law Officer with the Irish Environmental Network and is also a Vice President of the European Environmental Bureau, which is the largest environmental non-governmental organisation in Europe. You're both very, very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Richard, maybe I'd start with you, if that's okay. Can you just give us an outline of what's involved in this Climate Action Bill and maybe some of the history to it. Yeah, I suppose what the, the, the Climate Action Bill is a legal framework. It's not a set, a set of um, policies for climate action. It's a framework within which uh, we will develop climate policy over the next, um, I suppose, 30 years up to 2050. Uh, so what it does is a number of things. It sets the target for 2050, a net zero target. It also sets a target for 2030, uh, a 50%, 51% uh, literally reduction in our uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Uh, so that's one key element. So that creates the framework. The way in which it's going to proceed is through five yearly climate budgets. And each budget will uh, set out what the aggregate emissions over those five years can be. Uh, and it will be then down to the minister to allocate those climate budgets across the different sectors. Um, now, the climate budget will be formed in a particular way. It will be uh, proposed by the Climate Action Committee. So this is an independent uh, membership committee that will set out uh, the, the needs to achieve uh, the net zero and the 50%. It will set out its recommendations as to how that budget should be framed. Uh, and it will give a, a roadmap. Now, it will be up to ministers then to uh, either accept that or, if you like to use the phrase, comply or explain. They either comply with it and accept it, or if they want to make changes, they have to say why they're making changes. The Oireachtas then will uh, decide uh, whether it accepts the climate budget that's put forward by government. It can reject it once, uh, but on the second occasion, the climate budget put forward uh, is binding. Uh, I suppose the other interesting part is, you know, it sets out the mechanisms uh, through which all this will be done. So there's going to be annual climate plans, five-year climate plans, and indeed 30-year climate strategies. Uh, there will be an obligation on ministers to be accountable each year on how they're doing, uh, and there will be an obligation on them if they're deviating off the path set out in the climate budget, how they're going to correct that. Uh, so it is a, it's an important piece of, of legislation. It creates a framework, but uh, the heavy lifting has now to be done in that we now have to develop the policies uh, that make this a reality. Uh, I had, as you probably know, developed a climate action plan to 2030. 
uh, which set out the ambition of about a 35% uh, reduction. That's been pushed up to 51%. So the uh, policies that were in that climate action plan are now going to have to be substantially enhanced uh, to achieve the, the new target. So that's the work of the coming number of months, uh, both by ministers, government, and of course, the Climate Action Council. And is it enough, Richard? I mean, we know that um, this is a, a massive existential crisis for the world, climate change. Will this bill do what needs to be done to, to save Ireland from rising seas and other other climatic conditions that are going to damage the country and our future? Well, it can be disputed as to you know how much should be done, but I suppose what you can say is that 51% reduction uh, compared to 2018 is more ambitious than any other country is setting in terms of the pace of change. Uh, now, you would equally say that Ireland has not been exemplary in achieving much to date, but say the Europe talks about a 55% reduction, but that's off a 1990 target, and they're already substantially on the road to hit that 55%. We're, if you like, starting from ground zero in, in 2018 and have to hit the 51%. So it is very ambitious in Irish terms. No other country is uh, setting such a, a, a strong path of change, uh, but you might say, well, we need to do so. So I think it is, um, you know, it, it is ambitious. It, it was based on um, the manifesto from the Greens, obviously, who are setting out the 7% r- reduction uh, that needed to be made each year. And uh, that's where the 51% has come from. Uh, so it, there is a, a, a base in science, if you like, as to why 51% was chosen. Okay, Attractor, um, do, you, do you think there's an, enough is done in this bill or, or how do you feel about the various aspects aspects of it. I should just caveat my remarks by saying that uh, the Irish Environmental Network is obviously a coalition of nationally NGOs of over 30 of them, uh, and some of them are still digesting this bill and, and forming their own views on it. So I'm very much sort of expressing sort of my own perspective and, and take on, on, on the bill, but a lot of this would be resonating with, with, with our members, and indeed um, I will be briefing them. Um, But saying that, obviously, this is an incredibly important piece of legislation and it's very welcome. And indeed, I would have to flag that um, uh, compared to the original heads of the bill that was published uh, late last year, there has been some improvements in in relation to this uh, now published bill, which has yet to go through uh, all stages in the Oireachtas. Um, But saying that, um, I, I do have to say I do still have misgivings. I don't think we're good to go. Um, and I think there's still work to be done, and I think it's really important that that we do that. Um, just roughly speaking, I would say I'd, I'd like to make 12 points briefly, just at a high level. Um, uh, it's my dirty dozen, but <laughs> it, it's your fault, Barry, you asked me to contribute. Absolutely, no, that's great. Um, so I suppose the first thing is um, it's just the mindset and the focus that there has been uh, around this piece of legislation notwithstanding the commitment and the programme for government, um, effectively, we have, we've lost months already. Um, the original heads of bill when it came out was, was just unacceptably inadequate um, as, as a starting point. And we saw that in the, in the very good scrutiny and fairness that was played by the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. Um, but the comments were, were frankly, if I can speak personally here, embarrassing, where we were seeing experts comment on the heads of this bill, saying that effectively our second generation climate legislation was was weaker 
um, than many other countries' first-generation climate legislation. And we seem to have failed to, to have, have built on that from the off and to come out of the, the starting traps in a strong position. But saying that now with the published bill, there is without question some significant improvements on it and, and all credit to all involved in that. And I think we see those particularly in relation to what is will be the new Section 3 of the Act as amended. I think it's a bit difficult for people to follow because this is an amending piece of legislation and there isn't even an unofficial consolidation of it in the public domain other than those that have been done by people in a voluntary capacity. But I think that, that is... There, there are still really significant issues. Um, and Richard very helpfully laid out the framework that there is. And that brings me to sort of my, my second point. Um, and that is the framework. There's basically about eight different elements in the framework between the national climate objective, this interim 2030 target, the carbon budgets, sectoral emission ceilings, carbon budget programmes, the climate action plans on an annual basis, the national long-term climate adaptation strategies, uh, and the, uh, the climate adaptation strategies. Um, and I think th the issue is, for me, is how that actually engages with the different actors and particularly the very important actor that is the Advisory Council, the Climate Advisory Council, and the intersection of those and the linkages still between those different elements of, of the framework are really problematic. Um, Again, Richard helpfully pointed out that the carbon budgets um, are uh, effectively sort of a core element in the whole fundamental cornerstone of the framework that we're building upon. Um, and this interim target, I think, is is extremely welcome. And I think it begs the question how anybody could possibly object to the notion of an interim target. It is so fundamental to think that we can actually consider ourselves on track to 2050 without having a meaningful, strong interim target. But I would really question what Richard says about the ambition here. Um, uh, first of all, I think there's ambiguity around what exactly the interim target is that is prescribed under 6A5. For me, it was quite clear on reading it, um, but it seems that there are different interpretations coming out. So I think this is something that is going to be really important to clarify and nail down an explicit and very clear interpretation of what we mean in 6A5 by that interim target. But also like our ambition in terms of that national climate objective, it falls far short of the ambition in a number of other countries uh, who are looking to basically re reach a carbon neutral economy, you know, by 2035, 2040, 2045. We say no later than 2050. Well, we're all human beings. We know if you have until 2050, it will be 2050. Um, so I, I think that is disappointing. And I, I would dispute the fact that we're being as ambitious as we need to be or as ambitious as we should be under our, our Paris Agreement Article 4.3. In terms of the carbon budgets, then, I think it is very problematic um, that while the Climate Advisory Council is bound by that interim target, effectively the government can move away from it. The minister can move away from it. He does have to give reasons, but the government can move away from it. Now, some might say that, you know, basically the Greens might decide that if the Climate Advisory Council wasn't uh, followed, that they, you know, they wouldn't support the government anymore. But the issue is we would have a piece of legislation on our statute books that effectively allows for a government to significantly depart from that binding obligation, which is only binding on the Climate Advisory Council. And I think at a most fundamental, that is a really, really significant weakness in the bill. Then as we actually move through the, 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 
the, the programs, etc. There is nothing in it to safeguard us kicking the can down the road, effectively leaving the heavy lifting to the to the to the latter part of the cycle. Um, and those safeguards to sort of provide for a smooth and consistent and fair share of of the heavy lifting that needs to be done consistently from the off at the earliest possible moment, because we don't know what's down the road. We don't know what other pandemics and what other difficulties may strike our economy and what other issues we will have to deal with. So we need to move swiftly and aggressively towards this. There are very significant issues then in terms of the uh, the the extent to which the, the Climate Advisory Council isn't required to be consulted in relation to other aspects of the plan. I think that was one of the things that I found particularly alarming, you know, when when I read basically um, uh, the the new section um, three, uh, uh, subsection four and five, in terms of the discretion on consulting with the Climate Advisory Council on key things like sectoral sectoral emission ceilings, uh, you know, for each of the sectors um, and the carbon budget programmes and the action plans, etc. And I think that that is that is very, very problematic. Um, moving on then, uh, just one of the first things I always look in a bill is when am I going to get, you know, what am I going to get when? Uh, and basically there's discretion on commencement here. So we don't, not all of this bill necessarily will be commenced on enactment. And I think, again, we need real clarity in relation to what, what is going to happen when. Um, in relation to some of the definitions, there's been a lot of commentary in relation to disappointment around the definition of climate justice and that it doesn't follow the, the recommendations of the Joint Rockless Committee. Just transition, I think there's a lot more that could have been done there in relation to following the principles of the Scottish Act. Uh, for me, one of the big issues is the, the carbon neutral economy, uh, which is fundamental to the definition of the national climate objective. And I think that that lends itself to a real vulnerability whereby we may lean on the expectation of uh, controversial expectations on sequestration and what can actually be realised through sequestration and the possibilities for removal, etc. Um, and all of those different types of things which could actually give us uh, sort of an overall uh, um, net um, approach to our emissions in terms of balancing what we're actually producing versus what we consider we're actually taking out. And I think there's a, there's still some work to be done there. For me, obviously, uh, one of the key things then, again, sort of moving on to point five is sort of Aarhus. Um, you know, this is a fundamental piece of environmental legislation. Uh, and Aarhus is a human rights um, uh, convention basically recognizing a human right uh, and interest in relation to environmental decision making. And in this bill, I, I find it very disappointing that we are not reflecting really adequately the three pillars of the Aarhus Convention in terms of really providing proactive dissemination of all of the information associated with the decisions that are being taken here. Uh, consistently throughout the bill, we're seeing a lag in relation to publication of information, discretion on how information is even published, discretion still, uh, and very ambiguous phrasing in relation to discretions on ministers to consult with the public uh, and other bodies. And, and obviously there's a, a huge concern in relation to accountability and access to justice and the extent to which the government um, and ministers indeed can be held to account uh, and local authorities. So um, and it's disappointing that the Citizens' Assembly recommendation in relation to having that body basically that could hold the government to account and assurance and cost protection here aren't explicitly provided for. 
I, I'm conscious of time here, but there are other issues in relation to the National Oil Reserves Agency Act. You know, there are, are significant missed opportunities here in terms of tidying up issues there where effectively nature is left to carry the can, where we don't address the issues of polluter pays in a balanced way in terms of how we actually reward that. In terms of the Climate Advisory Council, um, it's very disappointing to see that the appointments uh, on that hasn't been made um, sort of a public appointments role um, uh, in the way that was actually suggested, I think, by Dr. Ronya Ryle um, in her evidence to the committee. But probably most fundamentally of all is the issue of governance and accountability. I mean, we're talking here about responding to an emergency. We need a piece of legislation that is fundamentally different to any other piece of legislation that we have ever seen in this state. Uh, which actually guides us through a massive transformational, not just at a societal and e economic level, um, but also in terms of the mindset and the approach within government and within government departments, so that we can basically work together, marshal, report and manage on the type of basis that you need to deliver a programme of change of this scale and nature. We've seen the difficulties and something, you know, as as significant as COVID, but which is minuscule compared to the level of transformation in our society uh, and our economies that we will need uh, going forward. To, sorry to interrupt you, because um, I'm going to come to Richard in a second just to deal with some of those issues. I'm just wondering if the bill actually did everything that it aims to do, do you think that it would be sufficient or are you, do you still think it's not ambitious enough? I, th I think it, it is it is lacking in ambition. I think, yes, we could be more ambitious. But I think the, the issue is that the framework basically is still vulnerable. And while this government maybe feel it is committed and uh, is looking to itself, you, in my view, legislation needs to be written for the worst possible government that could effectively, you know, not want to. Um, see us safe home on this really important trajectory. Uh, we need okay. a bill that will make us sleep safe in our beds, and I don't think okay. we have that here. Well, let me put that to, to Richard Bruton. Richard, you've heard the dirty dozen there, the, the criticisms that uh, Tractor's made of the bill. Would you like to address any of them, or, or how do you feel about those those shortcomings that she's identified? First of all, I think it is acknowledged that um, we considerably strengthened the bill as it went through uh, the Oireachta Scrutiny Committee. Um, now, I would dispute some of the things that are being say, said. For example, um, I think this bill does front load the heavy lifting. Uh, like, for example, we now have 60 million tonnes of greenhouse gases. That's the number we have, and we have to get that to zero. Under this bill, uh, the first 10 years would involve three tonnes per year will have to be taken out in the first 10 years. And in the second 20 years, it will drop to one and a half tonnes per year. Uh, so we are front-loading the expectation of change. So the biggest uh, changes in absolute terms in our use of fossil fuels and so on is going to be made in those early years. Um, and I think that that is very ambitious. I think the other thing that has to be said is, you know, ultimately legislation is about getting things done. And while I can understand people, you know, from a legal background, quibbling about uh, elements of a, of a bill. I think ultimately our challenge is to make this transformational change. And I suppose when I, I was faced with that, you know, only what, 18 months ago when I put together the first climate action bill, and we had to stretch ambition very substantially. So, you know, that's um, 
ambition in that climate action plan, which we will now not far off have to double, not quite double, but that involved, for example, um, 500,000 houses being retrofitted to B2, a million electric vehicles on the road and a banning of all uh, combustion engines after 2030, uh, 8,000 hectares of forestry to be planted every year. Chagas, the agricultural sector, uh, to implement massive changes in the way they farm. Uh, our electricity system to move to 70% renewable. Now, when we talk now about, like a, a lot of people, uh, if you like, in the, in, in the sector said some of these elements were unrealistic. Um, I faced opposition from transport sector, uh, people saying we, we, did, we, we wouldn't be able to deliver some of those elements. So you know, ultimately, we have to mobilize uh, capital. We have to mobilize people with the goodwill to make this happen. Uh, and at a level much more ambitious than those levels. Um, so I suppose that's what I would come back to, is that legislation gets us so far, but we, the politicians, have to persuade the public to come with us uh, and have, for example, a €100 Euros carbon tax progressively rising year by year. What I found a bit cynical in the committee was that some parties who are, you know, looking for higher and higher ambition, they were also opposing uh, things like putting a price on carbon. Uh, and I think you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. You can't have you know, high ambition uh, if you're unwilling to accept some of the tools that have to go with it. And I think that, that is the, the dilemma here. We as politicians have to bring not only the doll, but ultimately we have to bring our whole citizen population with us. And that is our, our challenge. And you, we have faced resistance to you know, renewables being put in, wind energy, offshore energy. We have seen resistance from, from sector after sector to some of the expectations that, that are set. So you know, there's one thing setting the legal framework, and I think this is ambitious, but there's another thing mobilizing money, people, uh, you know, and getting people to accept change. And yes, by all means, we have to have just transition. And I think that's going to be a huge element of it. But at the end of the day, we can't compensate everyone for every change that's going to be made. Uh, so people are going to take some sort of a hit in their short-term living standard in order to have a better long-term living standard. And that's the real challenge here. Uh, the battle's not in the committees uh, about lines of the legislation. The real battleground will be getting people to accept the transformational change that, that Attractor rightly says is far beyond anything we've seen. Like even COVID, it only succeeded in reducing our carbon emissions by seven or eight percent. You know, that, that's barely, you know, that's just one year's equivalent uh, of what we have to get for each of the next 10 years. So it does show you the, the scale. So while, you know, obviously when we go through the legislation, we will listen to a tractor's uh, case and the case be made for tightening up different elements. And I'm very much open to that. But I think the real battle is winning the hearts and minds of people to come in behind uh, this. And you can't just do that by legislation. You know, you can't sort of say, well, here's the legislation, throw away the key. You have to stay in there until you deliver that. That's, that's not the real world in which we have to, you know, persuade people to come with us.
Well, can I can I ask you just about a couple of things there? You you were saying that you you feel that the first ten years and particularly the first five years front load the progress against the sixty million tons. Each of the ten years to twenty thirty is three tons per year. The bill itself doesn't actually ban the use of combustion cars, though, does it? No, the bill didn't. I mean, that was in the original legislation. Uh, so I presume there is some complication with the Attorney General, which you might know more about than I do. I, I think the European yeah, Union has a, yeah. It's clearly the intent of government. And it also is the intent of uh, a very su- substantial number of member states in the European Union. But it hasn't been adopted as an EU target. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, at the last council that I attended, um, and that's a while ago now, uh, there were nine member states who were backing us in, in looking for this to be an element. And as we know, with the new EU Green Deal, which has come in since the, then, and the heightened ambition going from 45 to 55%, I expect that you know, momentum for, for this sort of a target is building, not, not dissipating. Yeah. And I suppose Attractor makes that point that she talks about the governance and the accountability in the bill. And today we have a government and a Rochtas that is has made very clear indications that it wants to deal with this issue. But does this bill fall short in terms of binding future governments and placing obligations on future governments that may not be as sympathetic or as driven in respect of, of meeting these obligations? Do you feel that you might be letting a less sympathetic future government off the hook with this bill? Well, of course, you know, unless you put something in the constitution, a future government can change the legislation. That's the reality. We can't bind uh, the future other than, and even with the constitution, people can look to change it. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I don't feel that this should be uh, fought and won in the courts. I mean, if we find in that, you know, the only way in which we deliver change is by the courts uh, issuing orders to farmers or to uh, householders or uh, people who, who are, are, are not wanting to do certain things, I think that would have been a failure of politics. Uh, so I think what we're doing here is setting as tight a framework as we can as politicians, uh, demonstrating our commitment to make the change. But it is for, for we as citizens to achieve it. Um, and, you know, so you 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 can't, I think, hand this over to the courts and say, well, it's the courts who are now going to drive climate policy mm-hmm. and tell us what we must do. That's not uh, the way we, you know, we, we run our, our, our railways, <laughs> to, to, to coin a phrase. Uh, so, you know, I, I think what, what this is, is a very best endeavour by government, tightening the noose around accountability uh, and we do rely ultimately on citizens sanctioning anyone who seeks to deviate from these these obligations. I think that that's the ultimate san- sanction in, in in an election. But mm-hmm. there is nothing to stop, you know, some Mayo Jean party emerging or some, you know, rural party emerging who says, you know, we don't want any interference with tradition. It's good enough for my father and for his father before him. It's good enough for me. Uh, you know, this sort of thing can happen in politics but I think it's for us we who want to see this delivered and who understand the scale of the global challenge we have to bring people with us and you know I don't think we should be seeking to hand that over to the courts we've to do that heavy lifting Okay Attractor do do you accept that I mean you were saying that you were particularly disappointed by the the governance and accountability aspects do you accept what Richard is saying there is that I suppose there is a democratic element and ultimately we have to rely on the people to make the right decisions about the government they put in place in the coming decades. 
I, I, I do think everybody has a role to play in this. And I think people, when they go to the ballot boxes, have a critical role to play. But we have to be realistic about the selection of, of parties that we have and the way governments are formed in this country and the compromises that are made. And that's why it is so incumbent upon us to make sure that we, particularly when we have a coalition government and have had to sort of work in, to some extent, nearly in a national government uh, sort of mindset in relation to responding to COVID, why we can't take the same approach to this bill. And I think, you know, just going back again on the ambition issue, we're looking at taking the 2018 figures, you know, and I really welcome the fact that uh, Richard has said here that he will be open to listening and hearing um, as this goes through the Iraq, because I do think we can work together to improve this bill and to make it something that we can all to get together feel confident in. Um, and I would look to sort of say, shouldn't, you know, the 2019 figures are going to be out, you know, in, in a couple of, of um, uh, weeks. So, like, I mean, you know, and, and the 2020 figures, like, you know, would actually make a material difference in relation to the ambition that we were uh, setting out, you know, a difference from 61 million down to 56 million. But I think there are real issues in terms of the ambiguity. And certain aspects of the bill, particularly around that interim target that we need to nail down. I think there are real issues there in relation to the, the governance in terms of who is actually going to manage this framework in a consistent way. What body, what structure, how are we going to sort of report on this on a monthly basis so that we know that we're on track, so that people don't take their eye off the ball. Um, and I think there is a real issue there in relation to um, the the um, the extent to which we we actually do make this a just transition and that there is fair share in terms of the heavy lifting and that we don't take a preferential approach to certain sectors uh, um, and that high emitters and and high you know uh, people who are responsible for significant consumption patterns etc that they do carry their fair share burden um, but I think there is a real danger that we will imbalance this that certain certain people particularly in an urban setting etc and who are underprivileged and who are maybe suffering fuel poverty will actually suffer very significantly and I don't see safeguards in this bill in relation to that. Um, well can I ask you if, if you were a member of the Doyle and you were in the chamber when this bill were passing through and you could make one amendment to it what would that be? Oh gosh that is a hard question um, especially for a girl who likes to have her cake and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> I think the justiciability of the bill is actually key because then, the, you know, and but I think the, the fundamental issues, I suppose, are the framework. It's the connections between where we need to get to and the elements and how that they actually safely contribute. Because I dispute what Richard is saying. I welcome the fact that he sees himself as bound by that interim target. I, I really welcome that. But that's not what's on the pages of the bill. Mm -hmm. And that's the fundamental issue, which you, Barry, will very much appreciate as a lawyer. You know, that is what is ultimately legally binding. That interim target is not legally binding on this government. It is not legally binding on the next government. So, Richard, is, it may not be legally binding. Would you consider it to be politically binding? Yeah, I mean, I think the government has put its, its uh, you know, a core element of the joint programme for government is climate action and delivering this target. Um, now, it, it is going to be very challenging. And I think, you know, if we, 
you know, if we miss it by a small margin, um, you know, I, I don't think we should be up in the courts, uh, you know, because something didn't happen. I, I don't think going the court route is the way to bring people with us. I think we have to persuade people. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, almost implicit in what Attractor is saying around our house is, you know, we need to have information, we need to have accountability, we need to have consultation, but we also need speed. Um, and I think what the legislation is trying to do is to build momentum and that speed that we need uh, but also recognise that, you know, there is a real political dimension to making this happen. And uh, so you're never going to have quite everything that Tractor might like to see nailed down in detail because politics is about resolving conflict. That's the definition of, well, it's the definition I choose of what politics is about. And there is real conflict here. I mean, even among the advocates of greater ambition, a lot of them don't support having pricing carbon. In other words, the polluter pays principle. Some people are saying someone else should pay, uh, you know, not, the, not the, 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 the polluter. So we have that. You, we know we're going to face opposition, for example, uh, in, in some elements of the agricultural sector, in some elements of the transport sector. They've already are, are out uh, expressing their concerns that these uh, targets are, aren't achievable. Uh, so, you know, I think that concept of resolving conflict and bringing citizens on a transformational journey is the heart of this, not writing uh, watertight legislation that someone can go to the high court and say, aha, we've caught you out. You know, that's, yeah. that's the difference. I think it's both. And I think that that's the fundamental issue. It's not a case of, of you know, either or. We need both. Citizens do not want to have to spend their time, the resources and put their necks on the line in going to court, you know, to, to hold governments to account. Um, I it's can not governments that are being accounted, it's, it's other citizens. You know, if you go to court to say, you know, people should accept a carbon tax of 100 or 120, 130, or if you go to court to say that, you know, uh, the transport sector should accept, uh, you know, not a million vehicles, but a million and a half electric vehicles and, and end, um, combustion engines earlier than 2030. If you go to court to do that, it is something of a pyrrhic victory because then you, you have politicians and ministers saying that the courts have handed down a decision that you must now pay X uh, and make that change. That, in my view, would be failure. You know, that would be if we can't mobilize citizens to come with us and we end up with the court, uh, you know, dictating what happens. As sure as night follows day, that government will be thrown out in the next election and you will have a reactionary government coming in who's saying, you know, this is not realistic. We shouldn't have the courts telling us what we must do. We have to, you know, revert. So I, I, I you know, I, I fundamentally worry that you know, far too much reliance is being put on having some watertight legal instrument that can go to the high court to, uh, to if you like, bludgeon politicians who are thought to be, you know, recalcitrant. The reality is our politicians have to convince citizens to come on this journey with us. Sorry, if I can just, con you know, comment on that. I think absolutely we do have to bring citizens with us, but I think it's very important not to scaremonger around, you know, the... the the whole issue of accountability and justiciability. What we're looking for here, ultimately, at this point in time, is a bill which is coherent, which hangs together, which has an architecture and a framework in which people can feel confident that it will get us to where we need to get to. Right now, with this bill, 
there is room for improvement. And I really welcome the fact, Richard, that you have said that you will be open to amendment. And I'm really looking forward to continue to engaging with you and your government colleagues in relation to how we can make sure that we can all feel confident in this. Nobody wants to have to go to court. Well, exactly. And I think on that note, I think we can probably all agree that the most important thing is that we do put in place legislation that's going to deal with the issues. And I thank you, um, Attracta Evrin, Environmental Law Officer of the Irish Environmental Network, for your contribution and your, your candour in terms of the bill. And Richard Bruton, TD for Dublin Bay North and former Minister for Climate Change, thank you as well. Uh, we all look forward to the, the committee stage and subsequent debates in the Dáil and Shannon, and we hope that we can improve the bill in whatever way is possible and end up with something that works for everyone. Thank you both for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, well, now I'm joined by Brian Ledden, TD, uh, Green Party TD for Limerick City, but for the purpose of this podcast, more importantly, the Green Party spokesperson on climate and the chair of the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. Brian, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Barry. Yeah, no problem. Um, we've heard a lot about the bill. Um, tell us about your committee's role in the genesis of this bill. Uh, well, there's my committee uh, in more recently, we did the, the pre-legislative scrutiny of the bill, um, you know, from when it was published there in October, right up to Christmas. But then there was the, the previous incarnation of the committee, uh, which was chaired by Hildegard Nocton uh, in the last Oireachtas, uh, did substantial work uh, that uh, we we saw ourselves as actually continuing the work of Hildegard and her committee uh, when we took it on there uh, before Christmas. So um, I can speak to that uh, piece that we did. So we we got that bill that uh, Eamon Ryan had uh, sent over to us for pre-legislative scrutiny, I think in early October. The bill was the, I think it was the only time limited piece of legislation in the programme for government. So we, we committed that we would get it out there in 100 days. And um, now those 100 days, as you remember, were across the summer recess, as well as the, the lockdown as well. So I think what it meant was that the bill wasn't as, uh, as tight as it could have been. And uh, then when it did come to our committee, although we did want to get it through, as quickly as possible and the original aim was to try and get it uh, published by the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement which would have been in December um, but that just wasn't realistic so we went into about 10 weeks or so of, uh, of public sessions and many more private sessions where we deliberated on the evidence that we had heard and ultimately came up with our report which was published just shy of Christmas uh, that had the seventeen. We're going to include a link in the bio to that to that report and to the launch, so people can read that for themselves. Um, as you're saying, there you, you had a number of meetings and you consulted with people from all aspects of of industry, from SEAI and state agencies down to people from NGOs and that kind of thing. Uh, one of the criticisms we heard from Attractor Evrin there was that some of the things that particularly people from non-governmental organisations said just didn't find their way into the bill. Um, are you happy with, with what's in the bill or, or do you feel it's ambitious enough? I, I, I do think it's ambitious enough. I think what is in front of us now is, is an incredibly difficult challenge and that, that bill locks in that challenge. No country in the world has reduced emissions as quickly as this bill 
uh, requires us to do so. Uh, that, that steep trajectory from 2018 to, to 2030 um, is, is it's much steeper than, say, the UK or, or any other country um, in Europe or, or anywhere else. So I do think it's, it's incredibly ambitious. Um, you know, if we're to solve climate change, then we would stop all carbon emissions immediately. But that's not realistic at all. Uh, and so we have to do what is, is practical. Um, and I have no doubt that achieving the 51% reduction in emissions by 2030 uh, is going to, to just be uh, an absolutely monumental challenge. Um, so I wouldn't agree that it's not ambitious enough. I think it absolutely is. Um, I, I don't think we could have gone further than that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Richard Britton was saying is, as politicians, it's our job not just to lead on these issues and to establish these parameters and these targets, but to bring people with us. Um, do you have any concerns that, that people will reject what's in this bill or will find it too difficult to live with? Yeah, one, one has to have those concerns uh, because it is a huge challenge. I suppose it's worth pointing out that um, there has been a sea change in public opinion on climate in the last five years. Uh, and to give huge credit to Richard Bruton, uh, he led the policy shift uh, in government in when he became minister in 2018 uh, and came out with his climate action plan. And it was, it was his climate action plan, which wasn't mandated by the 2015 Act, um, but because of pressure from public, because Richard is a very serious politician, um, he came up with the Climate Action Plan, which ultimately led to, to this new bill. Um, so I think, he, he, you know, we should listen to Richard. He understands this as much as anybody. Uh, and he's right in saying we have to bring people with us. Um, but I think we also have to recognise that that shift in public opinion has happened. Um, and that really is in the last five years. And, you know, it started with the... Uh, the overwhelming consensus on the Citizens' Assembly in 2016, um, through to the special committee that was chaired by uh, Hildegard Nocton, and then through to Richard's Climate Action Plan. And then we had, obviously, we had a green wave there between the local and European elections and the general election as well. So I think the mandate is there. I think people understand that vast changes need to be made. I think we need to figure out how to make all these changes by not causing total upheaval and by not leaving people behind. But I think fundamentally there probably will be winners and losers and we are in for a difficult uh, couple of years ahead, but it's the right thing to do. And I think most people and most of the public recognize that it's the right thing to do uh, and are behind it. And I think, I mean, you've put your finger on the issue there because there will be winners and losers. And one of the great concerns about meeting these targets is what is referred to as the just transition, fuel poverty, uh, people who can't afford to put in place the measures that they need to to, to achieve lower emissions in their own lives. Um, can you, are you happy that we can do it in a way that's fair to everyone? Um, I, I think we have to, that has to be the very front of our mind. Uh, there, you know, there's there's going to be drop balls along the way. Unfortunately, that's the reality of things. Uh, but I think we have to say that a just transi transition needs to be 
uh, our foremost priority as as we try and reduce emissions. The we don't we don't have a choice, Barry. You know, uh, we we have to reduce emissions, and we simply have to figure out how to do it. And a lot of that burden will be on the state. How do you renovate or retrofit between five hundred thousand and a million homes in such a short period? Um, how do you pay for that? You can't expect the individual to pay for 50,000 uh, euro upgrades that simply when they don't have it. So we need to get very creative about how we do it. Um, so a lot of this remains to be figured out, you know. And I think like the focus up to now has been about getting the the uh, framework legislation in place. So it's introduced now; it will go through the houses, uh, and uh, in the side of summer it will be enacted. But then that really challenging conversation happens um, because it's, you know, it's all these changes to society, the solutions, the pitfalls, all of that needs to be discussed and, and, and agreed politically. You know, and I think um, it, it was said we're, we're not at um, the end of the end, we're at the end of the beginning, really, in, in dealing with this. And I think that is very, very true. Um, but I think, thankfully, you know, in Ireland, we 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 are a very pragmatic country, and we're very resourceful, and we've faced huge challenges before, and, and I think we can uh, we can face this one as well. And you know, of Western European countries, like we're somewhat unusual in that we don't have a significant climate denial movement. You know, we've a very uh, educated population, and and generally, when people uh, see that something needs to be done uh, and are led by good faith uh, politicians, then they get behind it. And, uh, and I'd expect that that will happen with uh, this challenge as well. Mm -hmm. So as you say, the real work begins once the legislation is actually passed. Let's get asked, even if Ireland does everything that it should and can and achieves the reductions that we've been talking about, are we not just one small country in the world and are we not really going to make no difference in the broader scheme of things. We're a drop in the ocean, aren't we? So we're, we're a small country, but we are also forever telling ourselves about the influence we have on the world. And uh, we're not being disingenuous there. We do have a huge influence on the world. And I've read pieces from um, international politicians who've said that the Irish legislation the, the real effect of the Irish legislation is not so much the carbon emissions that it will achieve in the great scheme of things, but it's how it will influence the rest of the world and show the way. And we're pretty good at doing that in Ireland. I think with this legislation, we are showing uh, other small countries um, uh, as well as large countries how to tackle climate. And of course, when you consider that if the argument is that over oh, a small country, we shouldn't um, do this. I mean, if every small country thinks like that, that adds up to a hell of a lot of, of carbon emissions over a long time. So there's an absolute uh, practical as well as a moral imperative on small countries to do their bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we all hope that Ireland can lead by example and achieve the, the ambitious targets that have been set out. Uh, Brian Ledden, TD, thanks very much for joining us and giving us uh, the benefit of your experience. Um, and best of luck as the bill passes through the Oireachtas. Thanks, Mary.
That's it from this episode of the Irish Legislation Podcast in which we've discussed the Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Amendment Bill 2021. No date yet for when it's going to come before the Dáil, but we know that there is a certain urgency to it and an anxious anxiety on the part of government to get it through. So we expect to see it in the next couple of weeks. But thank you to my guests today, uh, former Minister for Climate uh, Action, Richard Bruton, TD, from Finnegan and Dublin Bay North, and the Environmental Law Officer of the Irish Environmental Network, Attractor Evrin and the chair of the Joint Directors Committee on Climate Action, uh, Limerick City Green Party TD, Brian Ledden. As always, please do get in touch if you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast. I can be reached on Twitter at Barry M. Ward or by email at barry.ward at aroctus.ie. Thank you for your support. Please, if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with others and let them know what we're doing. And tune in next week uh, when we will have another episode of the Irish Legislation Podcast for you.